Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. show here on the caregiver dave celebrity segment i'm excited to welcome to caregiver dave and sandy dave how are you what's going on hey i'm doing good getting ready to go to philadelphia so close to you in pittsburgh oh yeah to uh hop on a plane and we can have lunch or something that's fine no you're not as close as you think five hours difference everyone thinks Pittsburgh that big huh yeah pennsylvania is that big for sure and our guest today joining us today is from bal ethnics co-founder and choreographer and dancer Waverly Lucas. Waverly, thanks for stopping by. How are you, man? Thank you, Neil. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. First, tell us this uh, upcoming performance at Kennedy Center and when is it and what is it all about the significance to the company and you and society of all? Yes, uh, this is a very important uh, performance. I think uh, not only nationally, but internationally. Uh, to recognize the work that we've done for 32 years, uh, being uh, one of the three professional black ballet companies uh, in the American black ballet companies and uh, Ballethnic actually being uh, the only one with a female co-founder as well with my wife, Nina Gilreath as a co-founder. And um, also pointing out that our unique blend of uh, classical ballet and African dance concepts, which we've, uh, that's been a pra praxis that we've uh, focused on for 32 years of our existence. So uh, one of the things, that's one of the things that we've done consistently. So I think uh, those are the things that distinguishes us from the other uh, two uh, black professional ballet companies, Dance Theater of Harlem, which my wife Nina and I came from, and Collage Dance Collective, who will be joining us on the program at Kennedy Center uh, called Reframing the Narrative. Well, hey, Waverly, how is the, how's the rallying cry for social justice that we're seeing these days impacted your dance company and the world of dance overall, especially for black dancers? Well, the thing is, I, you know, it's been a struggle that we've been dealing with far beyond the current <laughs> conditions. I think what it's done is it illuminated some of the you know atrocities that we've seen. But the thing is, it's been here, we dealt with it. And uh, as Maya Angelou would say, and still we rise, you know, and we continue to press on. We figure out a way to navigate through it, um, you know, where some, some people allow it to press them down and some people can't get above it. But what we do is we use our platform to fight not only for ourselves, but for other organizations and other people who basically, who can't necessarily fight for themselves. What can you tell us about how Bell and Ethnic uh, survived during the pandemic when so many theaters were forced to shut down and some dance companies just couldn't keep going? Right. One of the things we focused on a long time ago is investing and reinvesting in our product. And when I say our product, yeah. I don't just mean the physical product, I mean the people, you know, because uh, one of our uh, philosophies is that people are greater than things, you know, but things allow you to, to, to do, do certain things that you need to do to survive. And one of the uh, uh, things that we focused on early on is real estate. We purchased our property, we paid off, off our property, uh, we didn't uh. live above our means. You know, we paid our bills so that we, you know, so that our credit uh, uh, was decent. 
And so we were, it gave us some flexibility to do some things. And so, and to help other people. And this is what we've utilized, we, you know, with our uh, Balethnic estate, we have the uh, Balethnic artist residence, we have the community garden, Balethnic community garden, we have the Balethnic memorial garden, we have the um, outdoor stage, which we utilize greatly during the pandemic, throughout the pandemic, whereas when others were shut in, we were able to continue to work by going outside on our out Balethnic outdoor stage. And so I think, you know, our ingenuity is our strength and our passion for, for humanity and our, and our community is what has kept us, you know, surviving. Kudos to you, Waverly. Uh, that puts you in the 1% bracket of uh, being debt free. <laughs> mm -hmm. And those yeah, well, are the people who are going to survive. Yes. And, and, and that was uh, funny because that was one of the things that, um, we, we spoke with uh, Mike, uh, Michael Kaiser, who formerly of Kennedy Center and of Bloomberg uh, Foundation. Uh, Michael Kaiser um, told us, he was like, you know, be, be conservative with how you spend and, and, you know, pretty much hold on to your funds to get through this tight period, that unknown period, which was the pandemic and the social, mm. uh, you know, injustice, unrest and everything that was going on. And whereas we get out of one thing and, you know, it appears that we're going into something else. So we it's a lesson for us. <laughs> Gasoline we, now. Right. Well, it's the, the whole uh, idea with Putin, you know, invading, you know, you know, and so um, Ukraine. And so that's that's major. Some of the <clears throat> things that we're seeing going on. These are a lot of pandemics, a lot of serious things, one after the other. And you have to you have to be spiritually yoked in order to get to navigate through these things. I think that's uh, been the foundation of us. We, you know, we use our healing drum circles, you know, which that was something that was my um, independent study at in Ireland uh, at the Irish World Academy of Music and Dance of the University of Limerick. Uh, I'm one of the class of 2020, the pandemic class. <laughs> and um, two years later now, April 23rd, I'll go back there and actually walk in my cap and gown finally. You know, uh, yeah. my master's of ethnochoreology. Now, you didn't found this uh, by yourself. You had some help, right? Your wife? Oh, definitely. My wife, Nina Gilrith, as I pointed out, the only uh, female uh, co-founder, the first and only of the three professional black ballet companies. Wow. And I think that's, you know, incredible, astounding, you know. And so, yeah, she's a major part of it. There's no way in the world I'd be able to do it by myself. You've been together I'm how long? Woo, we've been together since we were dancing at Dance Theater of Harlem uh, oh. and, and then through Balletnik. So over 34, 35 years. Yeah, don't forget yeah. your anniversary or you'll be in trouble. So, no. and then when you talk about what goals, why and have you met your goals for the company, especially with this big opportunity we're talking about with the upcoming performance at Kennedy Center? Well, I think we have ongoing goals. You know, we've met aspects of our goal. Uh, one of the uh, major goals is our capital campaign, uh, whereas we're trying to really build out our, our facility, we, you know, because we own the land you know, on, in, in our community. And so it, it offers us the opportunity to really build something sustainable for future generations and to have an organization that lives beyond myself and Nina, the founders. And that's our, our goal is to, you know, you know we've, we've been blessed to do what we do, even though we've struggled for, I would say, uh, 30 of the years. Two, these two years, we've so, so gradually kind of moved out of the, just the harsh struggle. And so we're able to live and enjoy it a little more. But I wanna make sure that, that our succession is smooth and it's one that brings someone in or people in that have a passion for not only the dance and ballet and African dance concept, but also for the community because the community is what's most important and humanity. You obviously have vision. What, what do you see for the future of Balethic and the future for black dance companies and dancers of color? And is it mm -hmm. changing enough for them? Well, I, I think one of the challenges 
is a lot of the uh, black dancers now that this big inclusion thing is going on, uh, you're having a hard time uh, getting the black, you know, classical dancers. Well, yeah. because, because now um, the um, um, traditionally white organizations that have more resources can mm. offer them more. Nice. And then, and, and, and there's a mental aspect to it also, <clears throat> which I think, you know, pretty much goes back to, you know, when, when you've pretty much been uh, uh, treated like an underclass, it, it's a mental thing where you think right. because it's, you know, it's not, you're in mainstream now, you've made it, right. no matter what level it is. And so often they're not as interested in the challenge of forging something new, uh, making a new way. And so that's the challenge that we have. So I think our biggest challenge is now expanding more internationally in what we do. Interesting. Uh, so tell us again, uh, Balethnics uh, will appear at the Kennedy Center and how our audience can get tickets and learn more about your dance company. Okay, yes, the tickets can be purchased through the Kennedy Center. Go on to the Kennedy Center um, um, on, on, the, on their website. And, and basically that's, they have the whole reframing the narrative is the uh, name of the program, uh, June 14th through the 19th. And that is with uh, Dance Theater of Harlem, Ethnic Dance Company and Collage Dance Collective. Excellent. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's such great, uh, great content, great information. Uh, how excited are you? You've talked about, you know, the performance, but, you know, th this coming up, like with Ken the Kennedy Center, uh, the memories you have of the Kennedy Center growing up and yeah. this, to talk about this, this is mm -hmm. so monumental. People don't understand the Kennedy Center is mm -hmm. a mecca. Yes. My first performance at the Kennedy Center was with, as a member of Dance Theater of Harlem. Uh, we uh, premiered a ballet uh, called Phoenix Rising. At the, uh, Joffrey Holder did an incredible set design for that ballet. You know, um, the ballet took a bit of a hit. <laughs> it was a challenge, but, uh, you know, as a premiere. But the uh, set design was, wow, was phenomenal by Joffrey Holder. And, um, you know, like I said, that was my first time there. And so it was incredible. And this many years later, uh, I'm back there, you know, it's like, and what I love about it is I'm back as a co-founding director and, and choreographer. Will so Jeff to me, be building, me. will Jeffrey be building the sets again? Oh, Jeffrey Holder has passed, uh, oh. may rest in peace, but he rest in peace. was awesome. You know, <laughs> yes. Cool. Now, uh, before I get to Dave's question for you, I really think about performing and the performance and how dance is just, expanded in its uh, reach, especially when you talk about Dancing with the Stars and all mm -hmm. the dance competitions. How many of your dancers are looking in that area and not just the classical to develop as dancers? What would you say in that, Sue? Well, I think, you know, dancers now in generally are really looking at the full gamut of options that are available for them. Uh, one of the things, the challenges that I think uh, many of the grassroots arts organizations have is the fact that many um, of the, the you know, of the dancers are going more over into film. Before that, it was more Broadway. So you have many options once you've reached a level of proficiency that you know that are within your reach if you're willing to put in the work. But it's all about the work because you know all organizations want dancers with integrity in their work, with artistic capabilities, and, and basically, you know, that have the temperament to handle uh, what we do. That's great. All right, Dave, you have your uh, caregiving question. Uh, go ahead, ask the caregiving question. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm not a very good dancer, but uh, I am a caregiver. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I do own a business. I have a gas station. And one day, my wife had a headache four days turned into a stroke, lost her speech, became paralyzed on one side at the age of 52. And I was 42. And all of a sudden, I'm a caregiver. And I had to learn the hard way for a couple of years to go through the grief process of how to survive this. And then right. later on to thrive it, which we're doing now. I've spoken all over the country, spoken at Carnegie Hall and, and uh, mm -hmm. on 52 TV shows and, and just helping people to 
survive because 30% of caregivers die before their loved ones do just from the stress. And I right. believe everybody's going to be eventually either going to become a caregiver or need a caregiver. My question to you is um, how has caregiving touched your life? And have you thought about, you know, the prospect that one day you may be a caregiver or need a caregiver? Well, actually, uh, we, my wife and I were caregivers for um, mm. um, her, my mother-in-law. And um, we, we did our best. She uh, suffering from dementia. Oh, and, terrible. you know, you realize how much it takes because it's a 24-hour job. You know, you, you can say, okay, I'm going to handle it uh, for this many hours. You handle it that many hours. No, it's a 24-hour job. And that eventually we did have to have, you know, get professional help with her because it got to a point where we were afraid that she would just walk off during the middle of the night the wanderer, and we would huh? never see her again, you know, yeah. because, and, and the thing is sometimes it's most dangerous for the ones who can maintain a sense of rationality. That's the scariest part. That's the scariest part because people outside of people who are around them, they, they don't realize that the illness is there. Exactly. And so, you know, they're listening and they're convincing them that everything's fine and they're, you know, and they're talking to them. And so they can navigate around, you know, and so that's the scariest part. And I was a nervous wreck the whole time. I would sleep right on the couch, you know, where, where I could see the front door when, when I was there, just so that I know she's not wandering off. Yeah, Today, we've got a lot of technology, nanny cams and little alarms, right. et cetera. But uh, yeah, God bless you for doing that. Uh, I created a and website. Caregiver- to you. Well, thank you. Caregiverdave.com is an online community support group. Any Absolutely. caregivers out there who need help, want to not just survive, mm-hmm. but to thrive, go to caregiverdave.com. Lots of free gifts, tools, resources. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we appreciate Definitely. it. And then Waverly, best place we can go, purchase tickets now. Go to your website. Is that the best part? Uh, uh, the tickets actually are available through the Kennedy Center. Okay. Yeah, that would be the Kennedy Center. Um, um, www.kennedycenter.com, I believe it is. And then uh, definitely check out Balletnik's website, www.balletnik.org, because we can also direct you there. Well, we appreciate it, Waverly. It's great information. It's great to see how you're definitely doing such great things for the community and doing your passion at the same time. We appreciate you stopping by and thanks for coming on. All right. Thank Thank you you so much for having us. All right. You're listening and watching the Neil Haley Show's Caregiver Dave Celebrity Segment. We'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley Show. And, you know, weight loss is something that um, is a challenge for so many people and how to keep it off and be able to create a lifestyle But a lot of times what happens is we think that weight loss is some way. Well, my guest today understands things and she's the author of, you can be right about everything and still have nothing. Stucked Up, a breakthrough path to unstuck and co-author of Life Boosts, author Vicki Griffith. Vicki, thanks for stopping by. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. I appreciate being here. Absolutely. So we're talking about the new book that's out. But first, we just really quickly go into, you know, when we think about things specifically when it comes to weight loss, what are the things that people just miss the boat on? And then they just say, hey, you know what? I've got these goals to set. I want to reach this specific plateau and goal. And yet they get off track very quickly. Well, typically, this isn't, of course, for everyone, but typically, for weight loss, people look at the tactic first. What's the diet? What can I eat? What, I, what can't I eat? What's the exercise program? And they don't look at the reason why they are slipping off of their program. The reason why it is easier to go ahead and eat the two or three donuts instead of saying no. Yeah. yeah. They don't, they don't look at the fundamentals of well, what's happening. And I get a lot of people who say to me, well, I can't diet. I just love food, but I'm not an emotional eater. And I have some news for them <laughs> that that response is emotional eating response. 
Food is wonderful. I absolutely agree. It tastes amazing. Yes, indeed it does. But if you're overeating more than what your body really needs, there's an emotional reason that that's happening. And that needs to be addressed along with belief systems about yourself. And I call those the stinky BS that we all kind of have at least one of the four archetypes I've discovered over the 20 years of working through this with folks that is sabotaging efforts. Yeah, it's, it's definitely sabotaging efforts. And what we're going to talk about today are tactics, traditions, and tales. And I think that's really interesting in a lot of ways because uh, to uncover things, to make sure that people are doing the right thing and seeing progress and seeing growth, you wanted to talk about these three things so you don't quit your goals. So some, let's just give an example. Somebody says, I want to be bathing suit ready uh, for the summer, you know, and they constantly struggle through this, but they have this goal in mind, but it doesn't happen. Yeah, that's what that's really coming up right now. It's typical goal. And usually that's a goal for someone around 30 or younger. So I'm going to go on this 10 week program to lose the weight so I can get into my bathing suit for summer. And it works. And then we start getting a little bit older and life is encouraging upon us. We've got kids to take care of and we've got a busy career and our spouse has a career, family. Uh, as we get even older yet, then not only responsible for kids, but responsible for parents. And we've got all the other stuff going on in schools. And some people are going back to school. I went back to school when I was, our son was 10. So um, it gets really busy and there's a lot of stress and stressors in our lives and it's easier to cope by finding something yummy to eat or having an extra cocktail at night and but we still have that desire that desire so we keep looking back for that tactic that 10-week program no matter what age we are that works when our 20s but isn't necessarily going to work now keep looking for that i want to know what foods i can eat and can't eat and that's one of the biggest hurdles I have to help people over is that it's not necessarily the food you can or can't eat. And if any of them have been a professional dieter like I've been my entire life, you know pretty much what are foods that can be can help with weight loss or what's going to you know help you gain weight. You know that already. So that's the tactics. The traditions are the habits that has been created around eating. How you're going about eating. Is it run through the drive-thru every night? Is it um, going out to eat often? Is it dragging the pizza home every night? A lot of times there's an excuse or a habit around making food at home because you have to cut so much up or you have to take too much time or all of those type of excuses. So the habits you've created around food and exercise and what do those look like? But not only that, your habits of thought, your habits, these, these are traditional. So these repeat, I think it's called 65, 75% of the time is what psychologists say are negative thought patterns that keep coming back and to us. So that's a habit as well. What habit do you have of thought that is sabotaging your diet? And, and then it's also, as I said, these stinky belief systems, this stinky BS that you have, and that tradition sometimes is placed upon you without you even knowing it. It's really sly. It is sometimes undetectable. We notice it through our actions. So in other words, we're not following the program and we're eating the second piece of chocolate cake or you're eating the rest of the cake right. so it won't be in the refrigerator for the next day so you want to get it out of get it out of your house so those beliefs about yourself and as i said there's four archetypes and uh, i'd be glad to chat with somebody about what that might be for you and what's sabotaging your program and your health what happens is that this basically moves into other areas in our lives so a lot of the same archetypes that's sabotaging your program and your weight loss is also sabbing, sabotaging other things in your life as well. And then the tales are the, the fairy tales. You create stories around 
these habits, these traditions, and these tactics, and you keep following that story, even though it's really a fairy tale, it is untrue about you. So you might create stories that says, well, other people can lose weight, but I can't. And then you'll create a whole story around that. Well, it takes too much time and it takes too much effort and I can only eat whatever, whatever you think that is that you can eat to lose weight. Most of us, when we go on a diet around the age of 20, it's pretty restrictive and we can do it long enough to get the weight off. And so we think we have to go back to that type of experience again. And that's not true. And so you're talking about, so things that are in our brain that tell us we can't do something, we don't, right? We say, oh, well, you know, I just can't do this, or I can't do that. Those, the, when you hear negative thoughts in your brain, that keeps the results from happening, right? Correct. It does. And I love that you bring up the brain, because what happens with these tradition, these traditional habit thoughts, it does etch itself into the brain. The brain likes easy, it, it likes very simple and it likes safe. And so when we start creating these habit pathways, brain goes, oh, I'm familiar with this experience. And so this is the results that they get. So I'm familiar with standing in the grocery store line, looking at the candy bar and putting two or three on the belts to be ring through. So that's what I'll do. And it happens automatically, it happens easily. And then pretty soon you're eating two or three candy bars on the way home. Yeah, no doubt. And, and that's, and then you're, you're done. <laughs> so I think, and I think that just the brain, how we react, how we, with food and certain things that stress us out with food. That's why somebody like you is here to help, right? Because a lot of times people think it's all about exercise, that's part of it, but it's not all of it because you could exercise every day. And if you still eat the same foods every day, there's not going to be any progress, is there? Correct. That is correct. And yes, yeah, so that's, that's why I said that's the tactics. That's where they're starting with. They're starting with the exercise or the food and the diet first. And both are extremely important for your health. There is no question about that. However, you're not going to follow through with your desire if you don't take care of these fundamentals, these systems that are, are sabotaging you over and over and over again. And, and who is it, Einstein, that says you keep doing the same thing and expecting a different result? And that's the definition of insanity, I believe he says. And that's what we do over and over and over again, expecting different results. In the meantime, the old programs are playing back in your mind and in your brain around how you react to food. And here's what's really fascinating about the whole pandemic experience. I'm sure you've heard that the average weight gain was 29 pounds. Right, oh my gosh, 29, yeah. Yeah. I did, I, I did that, but then I ended up losing 40 something. So I'm good now and, I'm, and I, right. I, can't keep, I can't keep the weight off now, meaning I can't put more weight on. I want to put on. So it's amazing how I was able to, you know, overcome those things and those obstacles. Now I'm just trying to keep weight on because my metabolism totally changed and it just happens for people. You know what I mean? It, but right. it's, it's a mindset. It's a growth mindset of doing it saying, I don't want to have those foods. I want to work out. I want to be active. And the pandemic just destroys everything. And so many people are still battling that to get them back on track. Well, that was one of the uh, misnomers that people said, well, I, I can't make my meals because I can't make my, I'm not at home. And then they were at home and they were gaining weight. And it was one of two things, either you gained weight or you, you lost weight. And congratulations on your weight release. That is awesome. And that you took charge of that. But what happened is that it, it was stressful. And when we're stressed, we rarely think logically. No, <laughs> we rarely we, think. We don't. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting how our brain just gets paralyzed in a way. And that's what happened to a lot of people. So then we had to figure out how to cope. And what does that look like when many people turn to food because it was close and it was available? And what were they doing to release the stress? They were breaking, baking bread. I don't know about you, but I went to the grocery store and couldn't find any flour or yeast. Not that I eat that stuff anyway, but it was it was interesting to see the shelves just empty because everyone had taken up baking, it seemed, and yet they were having to eat it. 
and, one client and, and, whose husband yeah, was you higher you, you put bigger larger portions mm -hmm. so if they you know to get unstuck you know the purchase your books for sure but also contact you right vicky because the important thing is if you want to work one-on-one -on -one with you or work with you in some sort of way the ability you're able to use the mind in the process and to talk to them and understand those things the more success you're going to have because a plan in anything from business to anything that you want to succeed in life you need to have someone to bounce those ideas off of and come up with plans because without a plan and without sticking to that plan there's no success well i absolutely agree with that and that's why i have coaches and I have more than one coach because I have coaches for different types of things in my life that are going on that I want to clear. And I realize that sometimes I don't always have a clear head to do that. Cause like I said, I've been a professional dieter. I know how to do it. I just don't always did it. I didn't always do it for myself until I released the 70 pounds and kept it off. Same thing with business and same thing with family, same thing with, um, anything that you want to do and change or accomplish in your life, you do need someone to guide you. Sometimes it's a matter of ahas. Other times it's breakthroughs. And other times it's just you need somebody to go say, go do it. <laughs> and then you'll go do it because you want to be accountable. So I absolutely agree. Find somebody. And you can you can find me at vickygriffith.com. It is my website. But I do have a free gift for everyone here today. If you go to Crush Cravings, so crushcravings.com, you'll get a video download series that will show you how to crush cravings in 30 seconds. And it is true. It really does work. And you can get these, these five videos are like a minute a piece. It won't take you very long. Actually do the exercise along with the video and it will crush your cravings. So if you are one of those emotional eaters that Chocolate chip cookies is your thing. It will take care of that. Or sourdough bread is your thing. It'll take care of that. So take a look at it. Go ahead and download it for free and play with it. All right. Fantastic, Vicki. We appreciate you coming on the show. And uh, definitely every one of my listeners out there needs to take on this offer, especially if they're looking at specifically trying to lose weight. And I appreciate you coming on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me today. I appreciate it. All right. You're listening to Neil Haley Show. And we'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley show and I love always interviewing authors because I get to learn so many different things. And in my 7,000 plus interviews I've done in my career in over 12 years, I constantly learn things. So I'm excited to welcome the program author Marissa Jones of the Lotus Tattoo. How are you, Marissa? And thanks for stopping by. Hi, Neil. I'm doing great. It's so exciting to be here. Thank you for having me on your show. I'm excited to talk with you. And I think that, you know, when you talk about writing a book and why you wrote a book it's always an interesting answer because a lot of times it's people finally say i'm going to sit down i'm going to write something to tell the story or others decide to write the book because they have a certain product or service it just all depends tell us the story why you wrote the book so um actually i had started writing a couple of books in the past um and they just never got anywhere because my passion really wasn't in it um, my first book actually was a book on how to build computers back in the 80s. <laughs> That's how far go, oh, my back it goes. Um, but, uh, you know, I was at my nutritionist's office and she wanted me to tell a story about how I had converted my mom's Sicilian recipes to, to grain-free versions because of my health uh, issues. And, um, and she says, you have a great story about your food. You need to tell the class. And I went home that night and I thought, I have an even better story to tell. And it was time. Um, and so I started writing the book and I couldn't stop. It was just one of those things where I woke up every night in the middle of the night, just writing notes and writing and writing and writing. And it just grew. And what was interesting was in the past, when I started writing books, I would tell people I was writing a book and no one was really interested. So I lost interest. But this time I was telling people about I was writing my memoir and I was telling them about the deep, dark secrets I was writing about, like all the skeletons in my closet were coming out in this book. And I had every person come to me and share private things about their lives that no one ever knew. 
things that they were in Alcoholics Anonymous or things that, you know, no one at work knew or things that they were being abused at home by a spouse or things on how they felt guilty about how they were raising their kids or they weren't the best mom or they were drinking. And there were so many different stories that I heard. And, and the fact that they would tell me that some of them were just acquaintances, they weren't even close friends or family, um, telling me their most private, darkest skeletons, I thought there is something here that if they're telling me this, that I need to tell my story to give people permission to start telling theirs, because that's where healing comes from. And so um, I wrote the book and uh, it's just, it's been fantastic ever since what's come from it. You know, and without giving it away, because you want to talk about it, it's, you can give some portions, but this is so powerful because to share your memoir in a way for people to see just how heartbreaking things that were part of your life to be putting that on paper is a hard thing. And so you don't want to give it away, but you want to kind of give people an understanding of some of the challenges you've gone through in your life. Absolutely. So, um, you know, I want to balance that with, I was very successful in life, right? I, I was, I have a 30 year career in IT. I was running multi-million dollar global projects, uh, um, you know, for large fortune 100 companies. And I was very successful in life. I had the husband, I had the, the big house, I had the, you know, the kids and everything looked great on the outside, but I had suffered with depression for most of my life. Um, I'm first generation American. My parents are Sicilian immigrants, uh, born and raised in New York. And um, my dad was an abusive alcoholic. And that created in me an anger that I carried with most of my life. Mm -hmm. And so I spent most of my life um, being a bully as a kid, yeah. as an adult, uh, to my own kids. Uh, I was a bully. I was also, um, I was always trying to escape. So I drugs and alcohol was a big part of my life on and off. Um, and there were so many things that, that I carried with me that I created decisions in my life based on that. And uh, there were a lot of times with depression and suicidal ideation that, that I carried. And so um, with that, um, you know, I just accepted it. This is who I am and this is who I have to continue to be. And so again, I was balancing that with a career that I was ashamed to talk about my past. Like no one knew right. all the hardships I had because of all the shame. No one knew that I was bullying my kids at home because I couldn't tell anyone they were going to take my kids away. Right. And so uh, I carried all the, the shame. And then um, and then in 2009, um, you know, I divorced my husband because he was having an affair. Um, I was so focused on work. I wasn't didn't really care about my home life. And I had what I call my mental breakdown. It was like all this childhood stuff just kind of, you know, yeah. it just came to the surface. And I found myself at 45 years old, sleeping under the covers in a fetal position, severe PTSD. Uh, I was drinking two bottles of wine at night. Um, luckily, my mom was living with me and she helped me raise my young kids because I was emotionally detached. And uh, I knew I had to fix myself and I had no idea what to do. Um, so I made a promise to myself that I was gonna heal and I started a self-help journey and here I am now helping others doing the same. So it's been a great ride for well, sure. It definitely does and so you're gonna hear a lot about specifically enough in your memoir, you're, the, you're in the be living the best life possible but you weren't. You were broken right. inside, the, the, the relationship ended then the distraught the and pain. A lot of people, when they go through breakups, regardless of the situation, their lives change in so many ways and they have to understand. And in a lot of ways, it took you time to cope to understand that I just didn't understand myself. And it goes back to myself, not you know pointing fingers at other people when we all have that anger, we all that say that it was somebody else's fault. Well, you gotta look back at your childhood. You gotta look at back at your decisions you've made and you gotta look back at all that. And so that's what your book's trying to tell people, right? Right, and my ex-husband, he had gotten addicted to prescription drugs and he had, was in a program afterwards and he had to make amends. And he called me and he said, uh, he said something that stuck with me. And he said, you know, when you get angry, he said, you turn into that five-year-old little girl who's trying to defend herself from her father. And that was a wake up call to me. 
And, uh, and, and that's what I started searching. Like, what am I still carrying from that? Right. What, what have I done in my life that was because of what happened to me? And, um, and so that was really the basis for how I moved forward with my company and how I decided I wanted to help others. So now I've created a program where I help others go back to their childhood. And, you know, everyone's, they picture the psychiatrist going, okay, lay on the couch and tell me about your mom and dad. But the reality is, is, you know, 70% of adults have some sort of trauma that they carry with themselves. Mm -hmm. Some of it could be severe. It could be sexual abuse. It could be physical abuse. Some of it could be they've witnessed a horrific event in their life, like a murder or uh, somebody in their family dying. Um, but it could be just, it could be abandonment. It could be a narcissistic parent. I mean, there's so many things that we carry with us. Some are really good and some right. are not so. And children yeah. can't, can't handle seeing adult things happen. Right, right. The more you keep them away from adult things, the better. And to understand, especially if there's a bad relationship in the home or something, the adult needs to not lay the burden to the children of what's happening. Absolutely. And you, it will be a deep cause in what they decide to do in life. Absolutely. It could be, it could be one unhappy parent that's through de- dealing with depression. It could be a, a breakup. It could be, as you talk about, as severe as abuse or loss. But you really have to look back at that person. So what you do when you work with your clients is basically you really find out what are their favorite memories as a child? Probably, probably looking at specifically enough any pain they remember, and then look at decisions they made because they might not know till an adult why. Right? We got bullied in school. Right? All of us got bullied in school. It doesn't matter who we are. I mean, everyone at one point was bullied. Uh, they dealt. You know, it could be something involving academics in school. You just never reached a certain potential. You couldn't learn well, or getting hooked in specific alcohol at a younger age or the wrong crowd that stems to who you are as an adult. That's really interesting that you bring that up because it's so true way we are shaped in life. You know, we can transform ourselves. There's still going to be so many cobwebs in our closet. We need to be cleaned out. Right. And so, so what I do is I work with, so most of my clients are very successful adults who have, woken up one day and it's kind of like that David Byrne song where they're like, you know, I have a beautiful house and a beautiful wife and, you know, how did I get here? And they wake up and they don't know who they are. They really, they've lost their identity. And sometimes it takes a major life impact for them to identify, you know, that they're really depressed or have anxiety or they don't know who they are. But sometimes it's, it's minor and they just start questioning, you know, I feel like I'm an imposter, I'm unhappy, you know, I don't know where I'm going in life. And so what I do is I, I really help them to identify, you know, what life impacts have you had that you're still carrying and which of those do you want to let go? And I help them work through the process of, you know, what triggers are based on the events that have happened to them? What decisions have they made? What, what values come out of it? Because as a child, we, we grow up and we have these, this value system that's imprinted on us, but we don't know how to identify what those values are. So I help them to identify what their values are because you'd be surprised, Neil, how many times I'll ask a client, you know, what's your belief in this, right? What's your value in family? What's your value in marriage? And they say, we this, we this. And they're talking about their spouse or their partner or their kids. And it's like, no, 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 what's your value? And then they say, I don't know. I don't know because their values are they've they've just immersed themselves into their environment. They don't really know who they are. They've lost themselves. So I help them get back to that. And, and, you know, if you think about what a value is, right, if I ask if I ask you, Neil, to go to your neighbor's house and go steal something, would you do it? Yeah. Right. Because and you don't know how to put a value to that. You just know innately you that's know, the answer. You know what the results, but there's other you know things the, that are not value. That are not value, right. That you don't have where you don't know what the result's gonna be of that thing doing that. So for example, making a huge mistake in some relationship or doing something so rash or financially too much credit card debt or gaining so much weight. You don't know the repercussions till you learn that lesson. And that's where wisdom comes. But a lot of times people haven't gotten to that point. Right. And, we and-, go through, and we go through the enjoyment 
of doing that, eating a lot of food, right? Or drinking a lot or over or, or gambling a lot or make not growing up a lot, but the result at the end has you show that, but sometimes you don't figure that out till it's too late. Right. And what it does is it creates guilt, regret, yeah. and shame. And when you make a decision based on your values, you have no guilt, regret, or shame, right? It, right. If you, if you make right. a decision not to steal from your neighbor, there's no guilt, regret, or shame because right. that's who you are. But we don't know what our values are. So when we get back to our values going forward, every single decision you make supports you 100%. So you never make a bad decision and everything you do supports your well-being, your mental health, the decisions you make and and you move forward very differently than when you move forward making decisions based on not knowing who you really are inside. You feel yourself, okay? Yes. So so you think of yourself first, which we're not taught to think about. We're taught right. about everybody else. We're not focusing on ourselves. It has right. to do with a little bit of the Judeo-Christian values, but also has to do a lot with the moral code that has been brought up in our world. And the fact is that if we go ahead and not think about ourselves and think about others and constantly just go 100 miles an hour and not look at ourselves and how we feel, we're going to hit this wall and we're going to break. Right. Over and over and over. That's one of the one of the things I hear from my clients the most is I get into the cycle where I'm really confident and everything's going right. Great. And then I crash because because, you know, I don't know where I'm going and I'm, I'm lost. And and it's that repeating cycle. And until you break that cycle, it's going to continue to happen and it'll continue to happen to your children because you're teaching them your behaviors and actions based on your your own trauma. And that, and so that's great. So where can people pick up the book? Where's the best place? Uh, you can go to Amazon. If you look up uh, the Lotus Tattoo Memoir, uh, you, my book will automatically come up. Um, you can go to my website. It's myeverydaybeing.com. Myeverydaybeing.com. I have coaching. I have a, a six-month my, uh, mindful uh, mindset warrior, the art of intentional thinking. It's a six-month intensive boot camp to help rid of all of the issues and traumas that you're carrying and help you move forward and identify who you are. Um, and I have a lot of online courses as well that you can you can take uh, as well. You have a tremendous mission and keep, keep helping people for sure. I appreciate you coming by. Thank you, Neil. Thanks, you're I appreciate you're it. Welcome. You're watching and listening to the Neil Haley Show. We'll be back in just a moment. Here on the Neil Haley Show, special simulcast of Searching for Integrity and Embracing the Abyss with John Smith. John, how are you? And we're going to continue to the next chapter in Embracing the Abyss. And last month, last one again was really choked you up uh, in certain ways. And it's just, it's really kind of reliving things that makes who you are today, John. Isn't that true? Yes, it is. And uh, it, it's literally hard harder than I ever would imagine of trying to um, deal with it, of, uh, of what it does. You know, I mean, my stomach starts jumping around, you know, when I was standing up talking about this. Um, but, you know, I'm getting there. I'm working on it. Had had another session the other day. Wow. And it isn't, it's interesting when you think about it because you write the book, but when you read the book, it kind of comes to you even more that you're reliving it again. Exactly. Exactly. And if any, you know, people remind themselves, remember John of what happened to them, in their lives before, you know what I mean? Yeah. That, uh -huh. that, and that, and then you, it reminds you of something that happened to you that was, went through somebody else. Those flashbacks come. Right. And what kind of feelings did you have? Cause this is just interesting for me to think about is when you go through reading some of those times, what kind of feelings come to you? How you felt at that time? How did you feel when you could have gone to jail? How nervous were you on a daily basis that couldn't keep your mind off of it? 
Well, I'm, I'm experiencing all of that whenever I come to certain sections of, of my book. That's, that's the part that I'm still, still dealing with. But I couldn't say at the, at the time when it was all going on, um, I was pushing forward. I was saying to myself that I'm going to get through this. I'm going to get through this. And, and, you know, like I said, I prayed a lot. And I also uh, talked to my friend, Steve, a lot. Who, who's, he's the guy that saved me. Uh, today, when I, when I replay those, uh, those scenes or scenarios, then, you know, I get the same feeling. It, it, the feeling comes back to me right away. Wow. But it was then, it was then more, more, which is really strange to me. I don't know. Maybe exactly. I'll learn more about it with this new guy I'm seeing. Yeah. And that's, that's good. Okay. Let's, so let's go right to it, John. Next chapter. Okay. Um, let's see. The uh, next chapter is uh, number 19. And it is, uh, we, we've, we've done Cruella visits. We've done the... Uh, um, Cruella visits was the last chapter and that broke you up because of how nervous your family members were that you were going to go to jail. That's right. We've, we've talked about the criminal code. Um, and so number 19 chapter is called Sentenced. Oh, dear. Okay. <laughs> yes. On October 12, 1988, the day before my sentencing by Judge Maloney, Steve wrote and delivered a very moving and convincing letter to the judge asking for probation instead of prison time for me. As usual, Steve was all over it again in winning form. He based his request on my character and history of community service, the low level of my offense, my loyalty to my superiors at Vernon Savings, how I had been misled by them, how I had voluntarily reversed the transaction when I learned of the true facts and how I had no personal gain from my actions. My conduct compared to my fellow defendants was considerably less egregious, and I had assisted the Justice Department and the FSLIC to a great extent. According to government agents, my assistants saved the government literally thousands of hours of investigation and attorney time and millions of dollars. During that sentence, I never took the fifth. I continued to work with them, even though their civil suit against me wasn't settled until just a month before. As part of the settlement, I gave the FSLIC a lien against substantially all equity in my homestead, even though my homestead exemption from execution was acquired well prior to my association with Vernon Savings. I gave the FSLIC all I possessed and more than the law would require. Steve provided the court with letters from people who had known me my whole life. They detailed my academics, my decorated combat service in Vietnam, my voluntary work at the Children's Hospital of Dallas and community service through the Rotary Club. This including coaching sports, school and other civic activities in the city of Coppell and most like recently working with disabled children at Scottish Rites Hospital. He spoke about my work on projects related to rehabilitation of low-income housing in Fair Park, South Dallas, as well as, as my lectures to college accounting students on professional responsibilities and ethics. Steve concluded his letter by saying Mr. Smith's extensive past and anticipated cooperation is but one of four separate and independent justifications for a probated sentence. His past life, character, reputation, and community service, and principles of proportionality and sentencing also go and support a probated sentence. After my sentencing, I wanted to re reiterate the journey of how difficult it was and warn people by telling them how not to do what I did. How can I help you avoid this? Whether you're an employee of a public accounting firm or the employee of a client, how do you avoid this? Wow. The first step is awareness. 
because awareness is necessary for consciousness and pre pre prevention. It reminds me of the song by the rock group, Yes. The same words repeat over and over and over. If it can happen to me, it can happen to you. If it can happen to me, it can happen to you. I hope to leave others with something lasting that they can use to put in their pocket and take with them into the future, like inner peace. That's chapter 19. Now, when you were being sentenced, how did it feel? Uh, great. Terrific. Um, we, um, we, some people had, had gathered back in our house. My, my wife's, uh, my in-laws, my wife's parents had come in from uh, Philadelphia. Um, somebody had bought a big magnum of champagne. And uh, my, her, my, my father-in-law gave me a, one of those plastic things that has all these tools in it. He said that just in case you didn't come home and thought you might need this to get out. Oh, gosh, wow. So, in, and when you knew that, you saw, still knew there was a lot of work to be done. At least you weren't going to prison. Oh, that's right. That's right. Um, it, it's, it's like... Um, not having to carry about oh a couple hundred pounds behind you, you know, just it's just dragging. It dragged and dragged and dragged, and and now I didn't have the drag anymore. Now I had my normal energy and purpose. Now it's all back. And well, and that that feeling. And so, what do you tell people that are going through these such tough times, getting to final uh, decision, which means nothing, not final decision, final result, which lots of people worry about. We worry about things constantly. Once the result is what we really wanted, in most outcomes, the result does happen for us. Some that doesn't. How can we not worry about those results and just wait for the outcome? Well, uh, you, you basically, for instance, when I would testify against people, various people, um, there were times when there were breaks. And some of the defendants who I was testifying against would actually come up and try to strike up a conversation with me. Um, it was uh, trying to associate so that he felt like I was gonna be uh, lenient on him as far as what he did, but I wasn't. You know, I, I basically had to uh, ignore. Uh, literally just it's this I could do this without having to use my fingers that's how I was doing it um, I just didn't pay any attention to it uh, I never looked at people in the audience uh, there were in the audiences the courtrooms were always full right and I never looked at people at all and that was because I, I would find something and fixate on it and I'd, I'd look at it the whole time until the judge directed me or until the uh, attorneys directed all right. Wow. That's how I got by, was getting by, was just not looking at the others. Look at the others and not think about what could be the result for you. And that's very that's important. Right. And do that's that. Right. And it's hard in life we do that. But again, John does that. John, you also have a show, Searching for Integrity. It's on every week on AMFM 247 and nationally syndicated on radio uh, across the country and podcasting. And you interview interesting people that have amazing stories that talk about and your questions about their integrity. And you're blown away every week with these guests, aren't you? Yes. Yes, it is. But, uh, you know, it, it gets better. Uh, even from here, it gets better. Exactly. All right. So check check John out at embracingthebiz.com, searchingforintegrity.com. Purchase Embracing the Biz by going to Amazon to purchase it. And John, I appreciate it. Another great conversation. Look forward to the next chapter next week. Okay. All right. Thanks, man. You're welcome. Talk to you Matt. later. You too. That was the special Bye. edition of Embracing the Abyss, Searching for Integrity, and the Neil Haley Show. Take care. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the special simulcast of Freedom from Addiction, Truth Just Below the Surface in the Neil Haley Show. And I'm excited to welcome the program, Reverend Wynn Henderson, MD. Wynn, how are you? What's going on, man? I'm doing good this morning, uh, Neil. Um, today's uh, show is entitled Mainstream Media's Misinformation Campaign against ivermectin 
Now, mainstream media has incorrectly insinuated that ivermectin is purely a veterinarian drug that could be dangerous to humans. CNN falsely stated that talk show host took a horse dewormer to get uh, over his COVID. Rogan recently interviewed CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanye Gupta, getting him to admit that CNN had lied. The FDA started the horse dewormer fallacy based on a single Mississippi Health Department report that said 70% of poison control calls were related to veterinarian ivermectin. It was actually 70% of all ivermectin-related calls, six in all. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.